Hey everybody, it's your favorite reconstructionist, Eric Brown and Phil Relly, and welcome to episode number 32 of the one and only show bringing you tips and tricks to working vehicle collision cases from the best experts in the industry every Wednesday. Today's topic is, you better recognize. So hold on tight, here we go. Every year, traffic crashes claim the lives of over a million people and account for over $500 billion of injuries around the world. A small select group of people from police to attorneys to expert investigators are tasked with getting justice for the victims, protecting the rights of involved parties, and ensuring the story is told accurately and honestly. Unfortunately, we believe that is an impossible task without the right team of experts. If you agree, then keep on listening for actionable tips from leading experts across various industries that you can start taking today to elevate your professional game. If you disagree, then tune in anyway and let us convince you with our ideas. We are Eric Brown and Phil Rally, and this is Crash Tech, the expert angle. Welcome back to the show, guys. Crash Tech, the expert angle podcast is brought to you by Crash Tech Reconstruction Services. If you have an accident that you need answers for or you think the other side has it wrong, Crash Tech can help. Connect with us at www.crashtechreconstruction.com to submit your case for a free review phil 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 man look that's the most you've ever been introduced before on this show but no time for trash talking today why because we have a super special episode right this is part two dose number two yes of our actual most popular show that we have ever recorded so yes more popular than tj Tennant. more popular than Jeff Mutart. Oh, man. And more popular than Darlene's episode. Yes, it is Swaroop Dinakar back live on our show. And Swaroop, man, I'm telling you, you are crushing it by a long shot. Your show has, uh, I just looked, almost 450 more downloads than our second place show. So, yeah, you are you are currently crushing it right now out there on the platform. Oh, awesome. That- that's awesome. And, and thanks for giving me the stats because I can't wait to call Jeff after this and, and just rub it in. Oh, yeah. So you know what that means. <laughs> that means Jeff's going to be back on the show because he's right. going to want to do something bigger and better. But yeah. So last time uh, we had to break this out into two segments because your your first show just, like I said, it, it killed it. And we got so much information. And so we wanted to do our own show on an acronym known as CAPLETS. And so... For anybody tuning in, we're going to explain what this is, but I'm telling you, this is the, probably the one episode that you absolutely do not want to miss if you are involved with investigating, negotiating, litigating crashes at all. Actually, you know what? If you drive a car, you pretty much don't want to miss this episode. Phil, agree, disagree? I agree. I think Phil's distracted. I think we should just kick him out. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to multitask. If you want to shut your... We'll stop it for a second. (laughs) (laughs) So Swaroop, all right, let's dive in and and let's just, let's just get off and running and uh, see what, see what uh, nuggets of knowledge you're going to drop on us today. Um, So uh, caplets, interesting acronym. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and what it stands for, what we can do with it, stuff like that. And then I'm sure we're going to have questions from me and Phil. And then, like I said, we're also stri- uh, streaming this show live as we're recording this um, right. in, in one of our closed groups full of other reconstructionists. And uh, that way they can ask us questions. 
All right, sounds great. So caplets basically is a term that uh, Dr. Mutard or Jeff coined, and it's basically seven different factors that are very important uh, just in general, but it applies more to nighttime recognition crashes because that's where we start seeing some of these factors or important elements start to drop off. Right? And CAPLITS basically stands for contrast, anticipation, pattern, lighting, eccentricity, time of exposure, and size. I, I know it's a lot to take in or remember at once, but, but it's just different elements that are required uh, and when, that are required for nighttime recognition. And you sort of need to meet all of these factors to give you good recognition. It's not enough, like, like I said in the last podcast, it's not enough if you meet just lighting, right? Because lighting is one of the seven. So if you have good lighting, but you don't have good pattern or good contrast, your recognition is going to go down significantly. So, so these individual elements all of them contribute. So you need to have like a high level of information coming from each one of these, and that helps with recognition. And uh, I, I, I'm sure I, I'd love to answer questions you have uh, about this, but I think one of the main important factors here that we see generally with nighttime recognition is contrast, lighting, and pattern. Time of exposure and eccentricity, we sort of talk about that when we are doing PRT analysis. So there's some overlap between that analysis and this. So generally it comes down to CLAPS or C-L-A-P-S. So it takes those two elements out. Okay, so let me ask you a question. And, and actually this was something that me and, and Chris, one of my, my human factors guys here at, at Crash Tech, one of the things that me and him were talking about the other day is I know Caplets was designed for uh, nighttime recognition. But the information that you guys are evaluating on this, like the contrast to its background, pattern, you know, all of these things, could you not also though use caplets during daytime? Oh, definitely you can, right? Because there's a lot of elements of caplets. Uh, to give you a great example, uh, just with pattern, right? So camouflage, uh, what camouflage is, is it's just, breaking down pattern. And we know as well as everyone, camo works during the day or at night. So that's something, that's a great example for daytime where someone's wearing a camo suit and has like a dense forest or like green bush background around him. It's gonna be very hard to see him be it day or be it night. You know, and actually that brings up an interesting point. You know, uh, speaking of camouflage, Phil to this day, uh, I always picked on him saying he needed to go get a suit for going into court and testifying. And uh, so his favorite store, cause I'm like, well, go out to men's warehouse and get yourself a nice suit. And uh, he shops at tractor supply company. So he, uh, he keeps telling me he's, he's looking for a camouflage suit and, and that's what he's going to buy and wear into court, like a real, a true leaf camo. And uh, you know, I, I think that would, I think that would be great. It's uh Swarup, I still hate him. I, it hasn't changed. <laughs> you know, when when you think about you know, the the caplets and and its applicability to daytime crashes, um, a lot of folks in the audience today that you know that are they're um, capturing us live, um, being officers, you think about daytime cruiser crashes 
and think about the uniforms that a lot of men and women, you know, in law enforcement are wearing out there on the street, you know, some of the um, agencies will have um, dark gray pants and a, a, a black or a dark navy blue shirt or a dark gray shirt. Think about summertime on a four-lane divided highway. I mean, you literally look like a piece of asphalt. And and it's no wonder people don't, when people say, I didn't see the officer, and people think you're crazy. Look at all the lights that are on. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of lights on a bright, sunny day, those those overhead strobes, can't see them. Right. You and, just and, flat out don't see them. Right. And, it, and even during daytime, like I, I know Darlene, who came on the podcast a few days earlier, a lot of her researchers actually see being able to recognize bicyclists during daytime and to see if yeah. lighting helps. So all of these factors do help. Uh, I think one of the main advantages we have during a daytime crash is the sun, right? So it gives you a lot of light. It helps you meet a lot of these thresholds just because of how bright it is. But once you go to once you go into the nighttime, that's where you don't have enough light and any source of lighting that you might have like street lights or headlights don't do such a great job to, to bring it any I, I can tell you it doesn't bring you anywhere near how much light you have during the day or, or even when the sun sets so it, it, it just makes it a little harder at night because yeah. one of your main sources itself is lacking uh, presence of the sun well, and you look at that video. Look at that video you sent us to watch. You know how many, how many, how many runners or how many subjects do you see, and right. then they're coming towards you, and you know, and you're 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 trying to count the number real quick before they get too close and give their give their visibility away. But I think anybody that well, watches that will get that wrong. And you know, right. and it's interesting. So lighting during the daytime, I still think too, because we just dealt with this the other day out on a crash that we had here in our county, where we had a, a gentleman in the roadway. And he was in the shadows of a tree and, but then he was backlit by the sun because the sun was uh, um, actually was still rising. And so, you know, you had sun glare in the face of the driver. And so it's, I mean, so I, I still think, yeah, even during daytime lighting would definitely still need to be something that needs to be looked at and needs to be addressed. Don't just assume that because it's daytime that, right. Oh, everything with the lighting is, yeah. is just fine because it may not be. Yeah. Right. I mean, you got to look at everything. You got to look at all the shadowing. I mean, there's so much more that goes into it. Right. Another example for this is, let's say you have the the sun's out pretty bright and you'll notice a lot of times that uh, your windshield is now reflecting your dashboard. And let's say you have a few papers or a couple of files thrown on there. It's going to reflect that. And how that contributes is it's going to reduce the contrast to whatever is outside of the vehicle. And that and that also can de- just delay the recognition of a pedestrian or another vehicle that's coming through. So that, that's another thing. Like, I think Jeff has a few slides in his class where he talks about just having like a couple of CDs out on the dashboard and then it just doesn't give you a clear view of the forward view. Yeah. So interesting. So on, on caplets and I guess like, let's, let's hear real quick, swing back to the C. So the actual, the contrast part of this. So when we say contrast, right, I think we have, what we're looking at is the contrast between the subject that we're viewing. So whether it's a pedestrian, a car, a a semi, it doesn't matter, whatever we're trying to view compared to its background. Right. Right. So, you know, and this is an interesting fact because how many police officers would, 
or or even attorneys or reconstructionists even or insurance investigators would say, oh, well, he, the guy was in the roadway, but he was wearing a vest. And so maybe it's one of those all yellow vests and it's during sunrise. And so he's backlit by the sun. It, I mean, isn't that the point of why they made some of the different colored vests that now have blue in them and stuff like that? Because they're used for different times of day. Right. Right. And, and that's why you see like different shades of fluorescent uh, being used. And it's just so that these are not very natural colors. Right. You don't see them readily in nature. And that's why when you see a color like that, it stands out. Uh, mm -hmm. to someone approaching them. And then that's one of the main reasons why these colors were selected. And uh, wearing a vest greatly makes you stand out from your background. Sure. You know, and again, talking about pedestrians on roadways, going back to law enforcement, um, you know, being pickier about, when you talk about contrast, be pickier about where you're, if you're going to initiate a stop on a car or something like that, Think about if it's on an up, you know, it's it, you stop at the bottom of a hill. What's your what's your background? The road, you know. Mm -hmm. So as the cars are approaching, they're seeing the road in the background. If you're wearing a gray uniform, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I mean, it's just it, it's contrast is so huge. You know, and and I know we'll talk about this too when we when we get further on because listening to Jeff talk about caplets at some of the the conferences that we've gone to, and he talks about like semis are an interesting beast. Because as you're as you're looking at something, eventually that that thing gets so big that it fills your field of view, and and it no longer has a, a really distinct pattern and size and, and and contrast to its background. But you know, think about a semi. Most people would be like, "Oh, the semi pulls out in front of my client who's coming down the road. How could you not see a semi?" You know. But if if the if the semi is gray and or white, and behind it is you know it's in an industrial area that's filled with other semis. And gray and white buildings, the semi may just blend right in. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's, there's actually a couple of factors that might come into play there. Uh, number one is, let's say, exactly like you said, if it's an industrial area, uh, what all, this is almost true for every single case, which is what we talk about called eccentricity, right? So if two objects are on a collision course, so the car and the semi are going to go meet at the point of impact, the semi is going to stay in a relatively similar position throughout as you approach it, right? So it's going to appear there. And if it matches, let's say, a building in the background, then to you, relatively, it's looking like a building which doesn't really change in your field of view and the semi being there. So you, it can play mind tricks on you, so where if it's not very clear. But generally, during the day, semi pulling out is, is fairly... Uh, easy to recognize if this if you don't have a very complex background, but where semis do get difficult to see are let's say if it's an overturned semi across the roadway, and and it's nighttime and all you have is your headlights that shine on the belly of the trailer. Mm -hmm. That's just a nightmare scenario because your headlights are, don't shine out wide enough to illuminate the entire thing, and being at the bottom of a trailer, it's going to be gray or filled with dirt and it just blends in. And in what we've usually seen in from a lot of dash cam videos from these crashes is you see the driver just realize maybe one or two frames before the crash happens that, oh, there's a semi across the road. And, and that's just, just, that's just a mean trick of mm -hmm. sorts to play on the driver. 
<laughs> right. So, and, and let's, let's dive in here also then to, uh, so that lays out contrast. And, and if you want to hit any other points too, just let me know. I mean, we can always go back and, and stuff like right. that, but uh, just to, to kind of get through the, the entire acronym, the next thing I, that I really wanted to talk about, and, and because this one's kind of interesting is anticipation. And, and we talk about this and I feel like everybody who's been through reconstruction school has learned about driver expectancy. And I have a feeling like anticipation to me is kind of that, that driver expectancy. Yeah. Right. So when we talk about anticipation, what we're looking really talking about is how the research was conducted. Right. And what we've seen is that there's a very big difference between how drivers responded when they knew what the object was or when they knew what they needed to do versus when they were just people who were just told drive down the road and you may or may not see something. And when you do hit a button or call out that you see a pedestrian or an object. And so consistently what we've seen is, let's say it's a closed course study. So you're on a test track uh, and you're, you're, you're asked to just drive around and find pedestrians on the road. Pedestrians were recognized much earlier. Uh, similarly, if I told you, hey, Phil, drive down the road and somewhere maybe 500 feet down the road, you might see a pedestrian wearing all dark clothes when you see him press the button. And even in those cases, when pedestrians knew, when, when drivers knew there's, a, there's something specific that they need to recognize, they were recognized significantly earlier. But when we're driving in real world conditions, right, nobody tells us, hey, so go down maybe a mile or so down the road, a pedestrian's gonna run across the road uh, to whom you have to break and avoid the crash. Nobody has this information. So that's where, when you're addressing the research, so what we usually say is, look at how the study was conducted if you decide to cite it. And if they say it's a closed course study, it's more likely than not, just the numbers being reported are being overestimated uh, as compared to if it was an closed course as compared to if it was a real world study or where participants had no idea what they were trying to recognize. So would, would anticipation, would this fall into, like, let's say just to, to kind of put this in a, in a real world example, example for the investigators watching this, would, would you expect being, because you've researched, you know, the crap out of this, this topic. So if you have a driver, say me in my neighborhood, Right. And I hit a pedestrian who's walking in the roadway in my neighborhood, even though my my neighborhood has sidewalks. Everybody loves to walk in the road for some reason. I don't know why they just do. And, uh, you know, and they walk like three or four people abreast. So if I whack a pedestrian, wouldn't it almost be kind of like, well, your anticipation should have almost been there because you drive through this neighborhood multiple times a day. You see people walking, multiple people abreast in the roadway every day. Like you should kind of expect them to be there when you when you took, start comparing perception response. You kind right. of took away my you took away my thought on that too because I was going down the road of I think complacency plays a big role. Well, right, but but wouldn't you? So you know, and and Jeff because Jeff brought this point up though of of you don't really try and calculate somebody's perception response. You take how they responded and compare it to the research to determine whether or not it was reasonable. But so wouldn't you almost say then that, that, yeah, the complacency is unreasonable. Like somebody who drives in this neighborhood regularly knows the walking patterns, knows people commonly do this. You would expect to see them have some anticipation that they might encounter pedestrians walking in the road. 
So uh, I think as far as recognition, uh, it's it's not going to help a lot. But as far as perception response time, there might be a slight influence. But then it you know it really comes down to how often this happens, right? Like let's say you're driving down your roadway, you know people are around, you know every you know people walk across the road plenty of times. But let's say there's this one time when someone darts out in front of you. Someone darting out in front of you is not really an expected event. You you expect people to stay out on the sidewalks. So if no matter how familiar you are with your roadway and the people, a, a sudden event is always going to be a sudden event, right? Yeah. And 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 there's just so there's just a limit to how fast someone can respond given the given how fast you need to how long it takes for your foot to move from your accelerator to the brakes for you to press the brakes and then actually the vehicle start to start slowing down so there is always going to be that human component there's always going to be the vehicle component and and they all still add up to producing maybe slightly fast of slightly faster response time but but not significantly faster so yeah cuz i'm just thinking real world phil was up here when were you up here last couple like last I'll month, never admit December, it. something like that. <laughs> and so he gets in my truck with me and we were going uh, to pick. Oh pick yeah. Up. When you about whacked the pedestrian. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we're, we're coming down one of the, one of the really main roads in, in our area. And there's never pedestrians on the roadway ever. I mean, it is a 45 mile an hour, like heavy traffic roadway. Yeah, there's no sidewalks and, or anything. And he was riding a bike on our side of the road. And I, I never saw this guy ever. I, not, I mean, if Phil wouldn't have screamed, look out, uh, right. we would have been calling you to come out and uh, <laughs> I, on my behalf as, as a human factors expert. Um, but yeah, because I, I never would have anticipated ever right. seeing a pedestrian on that roadway ever. I, I mean, you just never would see a pedestrian on that road. And it, there he right. was. And that was a daytime situation too. And it goes back yeah. to, you know, like you were saying on, on anticipation, if you don't, if you don't see it on a regular basis, it's not something you're accustomed to. It's not something that you, you know, your brain is, is processing and, and, and planning to see it. If you've never experienced it, you're probably not going to anticipate it at all. Right. And that would have been a bad situation right there. Yeah. Really, that was right. two reconstructionists and police officers in a car yeah. <laughs> 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 pedestrian in, broad, in broad daylight. Yeah. That would have been real bad. Oh, um, so, headlines. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you'd have to pull out your roller wheel from the back and say, I got this. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got yeah. it. <laughs> yep. So, oh, man. Uh, all right. So then let's talk about pattern, you know, and so pattern. So here we're looking at the edges of, of whatever we're trying to view, right? And how right. and almost how it is. Now, is, is it how those edges, though, contrast from anything else? Or is it just the edges? And if it's a shape that we recognize? So so it, it is definitely a shape that you recognize. So. Uh, what a great example is tractor trailers with reflective material on them. Uh, so you will see that there's a red and white line across or across the back. You see the line, you see it's like 50 feet wide, you know, it's a tractor trailer. But then it has to be good reflective tape, right? That, that's, that's a whole different story where trucks are not maintained well enough to, to keep the tape going, uh, to, to keep the tape being as bright as, all, as it always is. Uh, adding to that, the, the video example I sent you guys, uh, if you see that pedestrians where you have a good outline, uh, you're marking out where their knees are, they're wearing a good class three vest, uh, 
you recognize the pattern that it's a pedestrian, you recognize them faster. Uh, one of the main reasons you see that reflective material on sides of police cruisers, where it's a very good practice to put out, to give your approaching driver as much information as possible that, hey, that this is a car, like this is a recognizable shape. Because what we've seen is a single light doesn't help, right? It, people just assume it's something off of the road uh, that's further down the road. Sorry. So a, a single source of light might look like a street light that's maybe a thousand or 2000 feet away. So something that stands out, something that helps drivers recognize the shape of the object. And then at the same time, it has to stand out from its background and, and that helps with recognition. So, and, and so Chris actually just chimed in with a question and this is kind of an interesting question. So his question is, is there a normal response when people don't recognize what the hazard is? So I'm, I'm assuming like what yeah, the normal how, response is call 911. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, I mean, do like if people don't recognize what they're looking yeah. at, do they just stare at it until they hit it? I mean, that's uh, what I would kind of assume the normal response yeah. would be. Uh, I think Jeff would say the normal response is boom, boom. You know, and I think think you're right because I wonder if you would, your mind would kind of take over trying to figure out what it is it's seeing that it's not, it's not able to process. Yeah, and almost like put you in, and almost put you in like tunnel vision. Like, what is that right there? Boom. Boom. (laughs) Exactly. So, so what happens a lot of times in nighttime recognition is, especially if it's someone wearing dark clothes or, or another low anticipation event is someone who's laying across the roadway. So firstly, just recognition distance to these objects is very hard. And then secondly, from the time you recognize this object and let's say you're going 45, 50, 60 miles an hour, there's just not enough time for you, for your mind to have processed. Like everybody is in that perception response phase and, and that, that's where impact is. So that's why you'll see nighttime pedestrians wearing dark clothes. You, you rarely see a pre-impact response. You, you might see some response like after the point of impact because the driver goes through the perception response somewhere in the middle, crashes into the pedestrian and then finishes executing his maneuver maybe 25 or 50 feet after the point of impact. Yeah. And it's, um, it's not uncommon to see no response at all. So, and you know, real quick, and, and if you don't know the answer to this, this that's okay. I'm going to try and stump. It's like stump the swab, uh, Schwab kind of time here. So this, this is stump the Swaroop. And uh, so <laughs> out of curiosity, because we get this a lot where people don't see the pedestrian until the pedestrian hits their windshield. So right. arguably that's when perception response would start, right? Because right. They're just, they're just driving along and just all of a sudden, boom, something comes through their windshield. They don't know what it is, but something startles them. And, and so I've always used, even, you know, even if you don't have tire marks after that, but the car, you know, came to final rest in their lane or something like that, to validate the speed you get from the pedestrian impact, I would always use like the upper end of braking almost to vehicle lockup, like almost to threshold. And have you guys done any studies to determine that that's the case? I mean, like if somebody has a body that comes through their windshield, do they just kind of lackadaisically break or do you see like it's a startle response and they just, they try and put their foot through the floorboard? So we, we get asked this question a lot, right? And, and quite simply the answer is nobody's done this research as far as how drivers have responded 
operating a pedestrian. Okay, but well, if you guys want to do that research, let me and Phil know because I will fly him <laughs> and me out there. No, I mean, just to be part of it, Seriously. not to not to be right. hit. We could hit right. Phil. <laughs> Eric's going to uh, throw me into a car. <laughs> yeah, if you guys ever want to run that, uh, yeah. I would I would love to be part of that. And yeah, I would absolutely. volunteer. I would volunteer crash tax dummy yeah. that we have um, to be hit. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are more willing to whack it as much as you want. Um, yeah. Let us know. Right. But, but I think the closest research we do have to this, right, to a scenario like this is there, there were a bunch of studies that were done which looked at how fast drivers responded after hearing a sound. So uh, let's say someone's driving in the car, they, they blow an air horn and to see how fast someone responds. It's kind of a dick and, move, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> driving down the road and somebody blows an air horn in your... Yeah. <laughs> and, and fairly consistently response time has been near the 0.9, one, less than one, somewhere near a one second response time. And, and it's not really response to a crash, but I think it's the closest research we have to someone responding to a loud noise. Uh, I know there was some research done with backing cameras, right? So someone's backing out, let's say they hit a, a small pedestrian behind the car. How fast does someone respond to that? And, and all of that just does account to about a one second response time. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I'd like so, to see then, the braking. What's that? I'd like, to see, I'd like to see the brake to stop. Yeah, I so think, would I. I, I, I think, think it's going to be a wild range, but it'd be nice to capture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I just, you know, because I would, you would have to believe my opinion just from the crashes I've seen would be that, it, you know, man, like you would just try and put your foot through the floorboard. Holy crap. What just came through my windshield? You know, so your your brain almost just takes over on autopilot, you would think. But anyway, right. I digress. So back to uh, back to our caplets. Uh, so let's talk that we talked, I think, a little bit about lighting. Is there anything right. else that we needed to talk about on lighting? So to give you a quick reminder, so lighting basically is probably one of your most important factors. But uh, like I said, you need a light meter to go out there to the scene and measure how much lighting is there. Uh, a, a good range for you to look for is uh, you need about 15 to 25 lux of light for someone wearing dark clothes, uh, about zero to, uh, I mean, one to five lux of light for someone wearing light clothes. And the grays, the, the middle colors, everything is between the five to 15 lux of light. But then we have to remember just meeting lighting is not enough. You have to meet everything else in caplets. Yeah. And so I, I know you told us in the in the other episode, but for people that just tune in for this one, uh, what's the name of the meter to measure your lux that's available on, on Amazon for them to order? So it's the, the one we use fairly commonly is called the X-Tech LT300. And uh, it's about $250 with the NIST calibration certificate. And it's 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 an invaluable tool just for you to document how much lighting there is at, at the scene of a crash. And, and it's an illuminance meter. So illuminance meter is how much light is illuminating an object. See, I think I'm gonna dock Phil's pay 250 bucks and buy one of those. So the same. Um, the, uh, so with lighting then, and I think we, we touched on this, I believe in the previous show, it, not only are we talking lights that's lighting up an object. So like your headlights on an object at night, but does the position of a pedestrian under a street light or around a lighting source play a factor in this at all? 
yes, it does. And uh, so this, a lot of this information I actually got from some lighting experts, right, who teach how streetways, how roadways are being lighted. Uh, the preferable location for a sidewalk, and, and you'll see this almost everywhere, is the, the streetlight's either going to be in front of the sidewalk or behind it and, and never directly above it. Because having the light directly above the, above the crosswalk uh, just blows out your pedestrian, right? And so in that case, you do meet your lighting requirement, but then your contrast really drops because the pedestrian's very well illuminated, your background's also very well illuminated, and that just makes it a, it makes it a very hard task to recognize a pedestrian. So that's why if the light is in front of the side, crosswalk, you're illuminating the pedestrian. They are brighter against a darker background, positive mm -hmm. contrast. If it's behind them, you backlight them. So the roadway is well lit, the pedestrian's gonna appear darker, and that also improves recognition. So, so research shows both ways do help in recognition. So now, but on that though, I'd be curious, like if you're backlighting them, because some of these road lights are uh, orange. I see like right. that's kind of the light. And so like here in Maslin, uh, their school colors are orange and black. And so Chris brought this up actually in one of our tests that we did with, with some visibility is I would just be curious to see what that the ability to to recognize like a student in an orange and black clothing would look like if they're backlit by an orange light. Right. And, and that's that's just going to be the worst situation, right? Because now your students or the uniform just blends in with what the background looks like. And again, that that goes back to contrast, right? Your contrast starts to reduce just because of everything looks the same. So you can't really differentiate the pedestrian from his background. You know, and it's just it's so interesting to kind of see all the different parts of this intertwined, because like in that case, you know, you have the lighting, but you, you've now lost the contrast. Right. You know, exactly. and it's, so it's just, it's, it's so weird to, to kind of, because as you're going through, I'm trying to think of which one's the most important, but at the same time, I'm like, man, you can't really have one without the other. Exactly. <laughs> it, uh, so eccentricity, this one here kind of throws, I think a lot of people off. And so, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's where an object's located. I'm guessing in relationship to where it, is it where you're looking or is it to the actual car? Uh, so generally it is from the forward view, right? Because that's where drivers are looking usually and then the pedestrian or whatever the object is coming is coming from the side. But then if you have sworn testimony that, hey, I saw, I was looking to the right at the pedestrian as he ran into the road and then came and hit me, then your eccentricity is zero, right? Because you are looking in the direction of the pedestrian. But, but I think the most conservative way to go about it is assume that he's looking ahead and driving because that's where drivers look when they're driving. And, and how that has an influence on driver recognition is that, number one, we really, we really do account for it in our perception response time, right? So further away from your forward view, slightly slower uh, will the, uh, the response time will be. But then as far as from a nighttime recognition standpoint, what we've seen is like a lighted object. So like, let's say a bicycle light or, or someone just has one tail light on, the other one's blown out and they're parked partially in the roadway. What we've seen is that if the angle is further away from your forward view, drivers tend to attach it 
to an object completely off the road. Because what they do is, is now they project it. And since there is no context of where this light is, they just assume it's it's a light in someone's yard or maybe it's a light in someone's farm further away. And that just makes it very hard for recognition. That's interesting. You know, and, and I think because a lot of guys, I think, you you know, they would look at it and be like, well, one headlight was on on this oncoming car. Why didn't they see him? Right. You know, it's not that they didn't see him. They just didn't know what it was or where right. it was. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, you know, and, and Phil, this right here, this this plays into the pedestrian in, in the roadway that I almost hit. You know, I mean, if you think he was kind of off to the side of us, not coming into our path and that man, you know, just yeah. But uh, yeah. so time of exposure. I think this one's pretty self-explanatory of, of all of the, the elements of caplets. I feel like time of exposure is kind of, this is like the gimme one that, right. that people can, yeah. can figure out. Right. But yeah. this isn't total time that the object's there. This would be total time that the object would be a hazard or potentially a hazard. Right. Right. So, so the longer the hazard is visible, the longer drivers are going to respond to it. And, and it sort of plays into our pedestrian stress and lighter clothes, right? So uh, the longer they're going to be visible, they look, the longer I see a pedestrian dressed in white, just because my headlights shine out further away to a lower level, recognition's uh, going to go up because I see them for longer. Same thing with retroreflective clothing. Uh, I might not recognize that it's someone wearing a retroreflective vest as soon as I see some, as soon as I see a vest, but but I see them for long enough to recognize them still with it a safe enough distance to know that, oh, it's a pedestrian. So that's where time of exposure comes into play. Yeah. And so, you know, but on this too, I mean, is it fair to say that I think your your brain kind of tunes out a lot while you drive, right? I mean, because, you know, if you think about this, like somebody that comes out the front door of their house and they're walking down their sidewalk or, or even down their driveway towards the sidewalk, but they haven't even made it there yet. I think your, your brain, you might know that they're there, but you're not going to start to react to them. Otherwise you would never get anywhere, right? right? Like you don't actually start to recognize them as a hazard until you start to realize like, Hey, this, this guy's not stopping, right, you know, right. or they get to the curb <laughs> or, you know, they're running at a rate that you're like, this, right. this yeah. fool's going to come into the road. <laughs> you almost you know. have to start forecasting or, or predicting, you know, so driver's ability to, or how good are they at predictability? Yeah. Right. And then this really goes back to perception response time. I think how Jeff said it, just seeing someone standing on a sidewalk is not enough for people to start blocking up their brakes, right? If the person's just standing in the sidewalk, He's a person in the sidewalk. I don't need to lock up my brakes for him. I don't need to do anything as far as my response. But now he starts stepping into the road. He's going to cause an imminent collision. That's when drivers will recognize that it's a hazard and only then will they respond. Yeah. You know, and I think too, it, it depends on where you're at. I don't know when I, I recently just went to New York and, and I, that completed my circuit of driving in every major city. And, uh, you know, so like I rated Washington DC as the worst drivers in the world, which I don't, have you ever driven in Washington DC? No, I, I don't think so. No, they don't break ah. for anything. Like you right. could be running into the road from the curb line. They ain't stopping. Like they don't yeah. care. They're just going to mow you down. So like to them perception response, like, you know, the guy never stopped. I'd be like, yeah, that's pretty average. 
I mean, like <laughs> he responded like every other driver in the area. So yeah, I, I don't know. You know, and that's because that you brought up an interesting point too of just assuming where a driver is looking, and and it, it just it made me think in the back of my mind. I sort of chuckled, and I was like, "Don't you live in California?" Like you must York, not drive baby. a lot because nobody looks ahead in California. I was, I, I was stationed at Camp Pendleton in San Diego. Everybody looks down or puts makeup on or eats in the car. They, they are looking straight ahead. Yeah. So. It, it, it's shocking how many people are on their phone. Uh, it's, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Oh man. Mm-hmm. I, I, the other day we were stuck in traffic and I'm seeing this guy has, is watching a sitcom on his phone and he's he has a nice mount for his phone and he's just watching a sitcom and he's the only one in the car and i'm like oh this is not great but it's a great video for me to show in class so i was in the passenger seat <laughs> right <laughs> exactly yeah. you're like well, let me just kind of follow him and see if i can get any research off of him when he smashes into something so uh but yeah uh so time of exposure uh, you know i i i like that um and, and let's talk about size because this is such an interesting one and this is a, another point that that I think is 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 interesting because as you're as you're moving through a collision, the size of all the objects are constantly changing as you get closer or further away from them. As lights are 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 either getting further away from each other or closer to one another to tell that you're closing, uh, you know. And and this kind of goes back to the semi example of a semi is pretty visible until you get right beside it, but now it takes up your entire field of view. You almost kind of lose the edge in the pattern. Right, exactly. So, so what we've always taught is that size of the object matters. So the larger the object, the <laughs> yeah, better it, it is for <laughs> recognition. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it does matter until it stops being of uh, until it stops being of any help and starts going the other way, right? And a great example for that is. Um, a tractor trailer that's rolled over, your headlights don't illuminate. It doesn't give you the clear entire picture of what's across the roadway. So a tractor trailer being that didn't really help with recognition, right? Mm-hmm. And similarly, smaller sized objects, uh, like let's say a tire tread across the road or someone loses the tire and that's across the road. That's also really bad because again, you're not getting enough information. It's so close down to the ground that the contrast to it is also not great. And and all of that makes it difficult for drivers to recognize. Yeah. Interesting. So now we're gonna we're gonna beat you up a little bit here on, on some questions because I've been I've been thinking of stuff as we've talked. And so uh, Chris came at us here with another question. He just wanted to know, do you see a difference when looking, or I'm guessing he's assuming using LED lights versus fluorescent lights, which first of all, Chris, uh, I don't know too many cars that use fluorescent bulbs <laughs> in their headlights. Uh, most of them are incandescent bulbs, uh, but you know, whatever, uh, uh, halogen, halogen, bulbs. halogen bulbs. Yeah. Halogen bulbs. So yeah. Anyway, but do you notice a difference, uh, in, in the type of lights when, when it gets, or is it just as long as it provides sufficient lighting? So uh, one of the main things that dictates how these lights work are like, SAE standards, right? So every headlight has to meet minimum requirements. And and what we've seen is manufacturers tend to stick to those requirements. Uh, You can't shine too much light out to the left because you have oncoming cars, you don't want to blind oncoming vehicles. You'll usually see more light going off to the right. But then what we've seen in research is that 
when we when they compare LEDs to halogen lights, recognition distance increased, but but not significantly. So so it was about twenty or thirty foot increase in recognition distance, uh, with with LEDs being slightly better. Uh, yeah, but LEDs, man, twenty thirty feet. I mean, that can be the difference all day long, though, of stopping and and not. <laughs> it, well, it, if you are in a residential area, yes. But if you're go, if you're on an interstate, yeah, if you're going sixty miles an hour, it this twenty to thirty feet might not help I, a lot. I would think once you got to forty five, you're probably, probably yeah, matter. and that's because I think wasn't that always kind of the the old adage of of like at fifty is it fifty that you overdrive your headlights fifty. Yeah, that's what I was taught. 50 mile an hour, you're overdriving your headlights. So here, just hitting on overdriving your headlights, right? So uh, we've seen that it might not really apply to a lot of scenarios because if, let's say, overdriving really applies to what you expect to see, right? So uh, overdriving your headlights at night on an interstate doesn't really apply because right. you, 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 if you need to see a dark pedestrian on an interstate, you need to be going 25 miles an hour. Right. And, yeah. You've got, you've got issues. <laughs> yeah. And, and you've got way worse issues because of that. Uh, but again, it really comes down to what kind of a roadway you're in. So if you're in a residential area where it's very likely to see pedestrians, then the speed limits are sort of designed based on that ideology, but not completely. But Going 25 miles an hour, you'd see a pedestrian in time to maybe avoid them. And then if someone's speeding in that area, definitely overdriving. On interstates, you expect to see rear ends of cars, right? You're looking, all you're looking at is taillights. Um, so I can see taillights 500 feet away. So as long as they're not stopped in the roadway, it's a fair it's a fair enough speed for me to be going. So when you're applying overdriving headlights, make sure you're looking at which roadway, what the likelihood of pedestrians being in those areas are. And then, then that applies. Yeah. You know, and, but I mean, like as far as let's just say a dark object, like a, a log falls off of a back of a truck and it's laying across the highway and you're coming down the highway at 70. Like by the time your headlights hit a log, that's just lay, like, you're, you're pretty much done for. Right. Right. Yeah. You hit yeah. By the time your headlights hit the log, so have you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, fair enough. And okay. So Chris clarified, he said, he's talking about overhead lights. Is there a difference in the amount of light and, and the type of light given off between fluorescent street lights or LEDs because they're putting now LED lights into the street right. lights? So, so what we have seen is that LEDs do a fairly decent job of giving you a uniform uh, lighting across the roadway. So it gives you a brighter, whiter light, uh, which which does help with good contrast with a darker pedestrian. Uh, the only drawback of LED lights is that they have a very sharp cutoff, right? Yeah. So, so it's going to be bright, dark, bright, dark, right? So if you're not going to have a uniform uh, on, on a lot of roads, if they're not designed very well, you're not going to have a uniform background because it's just going to be patches. Uh, fluorescent lights, on the other hand, did have that, they, they kind of blend through into different areas. So they have their advantages. They have, they do have some disadvantages with them. But but we, we have heard a lot of complaints from older drivers saying the, the bluer nature of lights is a little... Uh, is not very comfortable to drive with. But but as far as research, they don't say they've seen a big difference between 
and have, really having LEDs out there um, and it affecting negatively to older drivers. All right. So here's the tough question. And, and this is going to be, this is, this is the hard one to answer. And, and you might not have any research that can, that can point this out, but in, in Jeff's book, you know, in the, the uh, uh, driver responses and emergency situations. So for anybody who watches the video episode, we're talking this book right here that I'm literally cheating out of as I'm questioning Swaroop. So, you know, anyway, so I'm going to quiz, I'm going to, I'm going to quiz you on Jeff's book. So uh, no, I'm just kidding. But in, in here, so Jeff talks about in the caplets section that think about a dimmer switch and you know, the, the more information you have, the more recognizable an object is. And, but as we were going through and I pointed out, like, just because you have light in one situation, you've lost contrast and, and this, that, and the other, is there a certain, like, I, and I don't know if there's a way to do it, but like, would you evenly assign like each one of these categories, like five points? And when you get to a certain threshold, like that's when an object would be pretty recognizable or are they not equal at all? Like is, would one be weighted more than the other? I don't think so, right? Like, because every single one is going to be involved uniquely in your case. Like in some cases, some factors might be more prevalent than the others. Uh, let's say it's a rainy day and there's good streetlights in the area. And then, so now you have fairly less lighting, right? You don't have need to have a lot of lighting, but then you're backlighting your pedestrian because there's a clean background behind him, uh, which is well lit and the pedestrian is not really well illuminated. The contrast in that case goes a long way to help recognize the pedestrian. So there's no real minimum levels per se, but, but I think everything has to really come together to, to help with recognition. Okay. That's fair. I, I guess, I guess I'll let you slide on that, <laughs> but the, uh, and so, you know, in, in that scenario too, that you just brought up on, on raining, it, you know, is it, so as windshield wipers, it, it, I guess when you go to do your post crash inspection, if you find that the windshield wipers are dirty and they just kind of smear the water across the windshield rather than just like cleanly squeegee it off, would that not distort the pattern of the person? It would. And, and it actually it goes further than that, right? Because uh, it's going to reduce the pattern. It's going to also worsen the contrast present. So it's very similar to having uh, a level of tint, like driving with a tint on your windshield or wearing sunglasses at night. Uh, because you're not getting good transmissivity between them. And, and a lot of research, just because they couldn't really have rain involved, but they wanted to do rain-related research or snow-related research, what they did is they actually put a tint or like a, a foggy layer on the windshield, so which simulated rainfall or simulated ad adverse weather. So it, it definitely does contribute towards reduced recognition distances. And, and yeah. that's been consistent. You know, and I think that that's just something that's so overlooked by a lot of investigators is like, you know, they note that the windshield wipers are on, but did you actually right. get in the car and look through the windshield and see, I mean, are they cleanly squeegeeing the windshield or are they just kind of dirty and just smearing the water around? Right. You know, and, you know, another problem, too, that we have here in Ohio is that, you know, I don't know if you've ever have you have you ever traveled to the snow and in, in the northeast? Yeah. 
Okay. So what people do here in Ohio is we wake up 10 minutes before we have to be at work, you know, and we find out that all of a sudden it snowed last night. So the windshield is covered in frost and ice. And so everybody lets like this, I don't know, five inch diameter hole from their defrost thought and, and they, you see them driving. I mean, Phil, how many times have you been on patrol and you've seen them? They're like gripping their steering wheel and they're peering through this little hole in their windshield. That's, that's the only thing defrosted. And so inevitably they hit something. And by the time the cops get there, the whole window now is defrosted because the car has been on. Right. <laughs> but you know, it, it just, it, it makes for unique challenges um, because I mean, think about that, you know, when it comes to eccentricity and everything, like, you can't see anything that's not directly right in front of you. Right. Right. You know, so I don't know. <laughs> Phil, what, what kind of questions have you come up with? I, you've been sitting there quietly so I can see the gears in your head turning and, and I don't want to jeopardize all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You're good. You're good. I'm just it's taking up. it all in. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know that, like I said, those were, Those were, those were my thoughts there. So, um, you know, man, if it comes down to it and I want to, I want to get this off so that everybody can take steps to be better tomorrow than they were today. And so, so we're going to give you the last word of this, um, because you're our guest. I think that's what we did last time too. And so we're going to try and steal your thunder before you can get to it. So Phil, (laughs) if you could think of one thing on, when it comes to caplets, if you could think of one thing to tell everybody, what would it be? What's your one piece of advice using, using this? I think practice. Um, I think take this out, understand what the acronym stands for, what, and, and go out and practice um, applying it. Not necessarily taking it immediately out to the next crash you handle, but just practice applying it so that when you do find yourself faced with that collision where – this is going to be fundamental to uh, the investigation. You're you're comfortable in applying the the um, the approach. So I think practice before you use it. Yeah, and that's kind of you. You sort of have have gone into uh, where I was going to go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna actually tangent off of that quite nicely. And I think I'm gonna steal Swarup's thunder. I think this is it. I think this is what he was gonna say. So here we go. So. My advice on this whole thing would be now that you have seen how important each one of these elements of caplets is individually, right? Stop blanket applying general notions like, oh, he had a reflective vest on. He was visible. Oh, he was under a streetlight. He was visible. Stop with that. Because I think we've we've kind of shown just in our examples that we've given during the show that that's just, that may not be the case. You know, you have to meet multiple criteria out of this, multiple of the bullet points in order to, to I would say, say with any confidence that something was there that that could have been seen. Now, whether or not the driver saw it is a whole nother discussion, right. but whether or not it was able to be seen. Right. right. All right, Swarb, did I steal your thunder? Is that what you were going to say? No, I think both of you hit on very good points, right? And firstly, practice, yes, it's very important because I think one of the one of the things that we as investigators uh, might do, like when we do a nighttime reenactment, for, uh, for example, is that we, it, and it hits perfectly on anticipation, right? We know we put an exemplar pedestrian out in the roadway, 
we know where they are, we know where they're going to be in the next couple of seconds. So you will overestimate where you recognize the pedestrian, right? So for someone going 25, 30, 40 miles an hour in the roadway, their response and recognition of the pedestrian is not going to be the same as you in a parked car knowing where the pedestrian is. So they, so you are going to overestimate where recognition will occur to the pedestrian. And secondly, yeah, you have to factor in everything. Uh, and we highly recommend going out to the scene, mapping it out, seeing what it looks like in real, right? Just knowing that there was a street light there, but not knowing how much light came from a street light. Uh, I think all of these need to be accounted for and, and that just helps you go a long way in court but where you don't get challenged for your methodology. Yeah. And so, you know, and actually that brought up one more question real quick before I let you go. Yeah. So is there a difference? And I thought about this because me and, me and Phil were just talking about uh, Ford versus Ferrari the other day. Um, I don't know. Have you seen the movie yet about Carol yeah, Shelby? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, he was racing Le Mans there at, at the beginning. And Patrick Dempsey also has a show about getting to Le Mans. And I was watching it on Netflix. And he talks about using yellow light. And he says, all the cars at Le Mans use yellow light in their headlights because it's the most visible. I don't know. So as I drive around here, I notice that some people have like those, the lights that have the, the temperature of the bulb is, is such that it makes the light appear blue. Then you have the ones that are driving with bright white. I've seen guys that drive with those yellow bulbs in. I've even seen there's this Honda Civic around here that drives with red headlights, which I constantly ticket every time I see it. Um, but even that one, like uh, that car, I write a ticket to it every time I see it because I'm like, dude, it looks like brake lights. Like you're coming at me with red headlights and the judge throws it out and the judge is like, no, it's fine. Like, I don't know, does the color of headlights make a difference in the visibility of objects? So I think it really goes back to how, firstly, how much light is coming out, right? So a lot of times, if the headlights are using some sort of a filter or like a tint uh, on top of your lenses so to project that color of light, that's firstly not going to shine out as far as lights need to shine out. Uh, but secondly, I think color as far as what's been tested, which is your regular halogen lights versus LED lights, there hasn't been much of a difference between rec in recognition itself. Uh, once you start going to the darker colors, you'll start noticing that when you map these headlights, that firstly, they're not going to shine out as bright as the other ones. Uh, and secondly, now you're starting to meddle with the contrast of things. So yeah. if you have a darker shade of light, you, you're not really making the road, you're not making the pedestrian bright enough, neither are you making the roadway bright enough uh, to be able to recognize pick out the pedestrian from the roadway background. So that that's going to definitely hurt recognition. It's just so interesting. Like, I think everybody just assumes, oh, the car's headlights were on. Should have seen the guy. Like, and that's just where the conversation stops. Oh, oh, he was under a streetlight and the car's headlights were on. Should have seen him. Like, and that's just where the conversation stops all the time. So I think uh, we have definitively shown throughout this show that uh, there, there's slightly more to it than that. Right. Just a little bit. Just a tiny not a lot. Bit. I mean, I, no, no, not not a lot. But just at least at least a little bit that justifies uh, Swarup keeping his job out there and doing the amazing work <laughs> that you guys do. Because you guys do. You put out the arguably in my mind, you guys, uh, you know, pass this on to Jeff and hopefully he, he listens to the show. But you guys do the best work in the world out there. I, in in my 
humble opinion. Um, and I, I love everything that you guys put out. So continue to keep it up because the rest of us rely on the work that you guys do and it makes our job and life so much easier. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, everyone, that's going to wrap it up for the day. As always, jump over to Facebook and make sure you follow and join Crash Tech, the Expert Angle Group. Also, if you want to leave us feedback, have an idea for a show, or would like to be on a future show, head over to crashtechexpertangle.podbean.com and click the link on the right that says contact the show. The form will come up. Put anything that you want right in there. If you want more information on expert consulting services or training, visit us online at www.crashtechreconstruction.com. And finally, if you're a PI attorney, make sure you request to join the Crash Site Facebook group. Or if you're a defense attorney, make sure you request to join the Crash Site Defense Facebook group. Neither site contains any ads or spam. It's just a private community that brings experts from all different areas together with attorneys to collaborate or ask questions. So again, guys, thanks for tuning in. And remember, always leave your accident victims better off than you found them because at the end of the day, everything we're doing is for them. <laughs>